Okay, well, my heart was for Brexit. Mm -hmm. My head, I think, I'm, I'm not even sure. I was inclined to vote Brexit, Yeah. but I voted Remain. Okay. The reason I voted Remain was because of my children, right. and they wanted to vote to Remain. Yeah, okay. Having said that, I think they wanted to remain on a false premise. And I wanted to leave, not because I'm a racist, but because I think that... This would be a lot more fun if you were. Yeah. But I think <laughs> yeah, I, just, would, I just felt that we as a country, if you're suddenly put in this situation where you have a paradigm shift, you can't, it's not business as usual. You have to do something different. And I think we need to be realigning our economy. I think we need to be realigning, you know, getting our values sorted out. I think we need to be yeah. really... We need an injection of adrenaline, it seemed to me. Mm. And I think the opportunities could be enormous. Equally, I'm very conscious of the structural problems within the... Um, in, inherently, I'm a European. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, my ex-wife is French. My children are, are, are Anglo-French. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, my life is pretty international, as you can see. Yeah. Um, but it's got. But there are some fundamentals about the European Union in the sense that it is anti-democratic. This is such a good introduction, though. It's just not recorded. Oh, okay. I was going to say that's no, such a really good intro. I was just thinking to myself, like, this is such an introduction. Well, we can go. Oh, we can, I'm always recording. Are you? We God. can go back to it. Start with um, <laughs> of course you are. And the tragedy. The tragedy is, after eighteen months, I'm no nearer understanding mm. which side of the fence I should be on. That is the perfect introduction because that that's perfect. that's the reason we're getting together today. That's yeah, perfect, isn't it? Yeah, I so, agree. okay, and I'm not alone in that. I think most <laughs> people are in that situation. I think there's a lot of people in this same situation. Yeah. I think, yeah. So that begs the question: Why? In whose interest is it that we are all still completely confused? Please discuss. Yeah, God. great. Welcome to episode seven of Old Fox Young Fox with your hosts Jeremy Woolwich and Oliver Happy. Today we are joined by Ben Musia. Ben is 21? No, 29. You're not. I'm 29. I'm old. And Ben is our young fox for the day. I'm the little fox. Much. And what does that make you, Jeremy? I'm a delusional fox. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about you, Ben. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, well, I've been, I'm from Scotland, as you can probably tell with my accent. I've um, been down here since 2009, came down to study at university, and I haven't left, basically. Um, I work in the city, I work in tax, and yeah, I'm just quite interested in having a bit of a debate about Brexit and just understanding what both of you think as well. So, looking forward to it. Very good. Well, this is a bit of a departure for us, because traditionally, we've been talking sort of marketing and business. And I think this time we're going to have a much broader conversation around Brexit, and that will introduce us to lots of other ideas, I suspect. But I think it's totally in keeping with the whole old fox, young fox idea, because it seems to me that Brexit is a classic demonstration of an intergenerational divide. It's where the difference between the younger people and the older people really is in stark contrast. As I understand it, um, I'm told mm. that the vast majority of young people voted to remain. Um, and the vast majority of older people voted to, to leave. So you have this real seismic distinction 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me as, as someone who grew up in New Zealand, spent 10 years in Australia and has now had almost five in England, yeah. that this is a real turning point, not just for England, also for Europe, not just for Europe, also for the States and therefore for a lot of the world. So what do we want to do, Ollie? Rather than talk about, cover the same ground that everybody else has talked about and is talking about, um, I think we were, we were, we're of the view that maybe there's some other areas that aren't talked about quite so much that would be interesting to explore. So yeah. can I start by asking how you voted? Sure. And why? Sure, sure. So I, I was working in Surrey. I'd been in England for maybe a year and a half. Are you allowed to vote? I am allowed to vote. I'm actually allowed to be here. Oh gosh! Surprising that very that few people are nowadays. And you know, I, I feel like I'm drowning in privilege a lot of the time, right? And my my father was born in Margate, so therefore I have an English passport. So therefore, I as a British. Oh, see, see, no, I, until until Scotland get a ref, another referendum, <laughs> see, and this is why you're here, Ben. Because when I was in Ireland, I said, "God, I love Ireland," and they were like, "Which one?" Yeah, and I was like, "Isn't it all one island?" So we agreed that Ireland and England was probably the best way for me to talk about that particular topic. Okay. So, so okay. So I was, I'd been in England for two years. I uh, was working in Surrey, and people started talking about Brexit and a referendum. And I said, "What? What are we doing here?" And they said, "Well, we're having a vote because England is." And bear in mind, I was in Surrey, very Tory group, mm. I guess you'd say. And so they said all of the things you would expect them to say. England's pouring all this money into the EU and it's not getting enough out. We're going to vote leave. This is our chance to get our independence back. And I thought to myself, that, that makes a lot of sense. But on discussion and a bit of investigation, I can really only see one reason to leave. And that is to force the EU to improve and update its policies. And I can receive lots of reasons to remain, like better together, no war, for how long, 60 years, um, the human rights um, issues and laws that are rolled out of the EU government, and, and just lots of other good things that come from unity. So I voted Remain. And I've not really regretted that for a moment. But I like what you said before, Jeremy, because I didn't have the full story. Mm. And I've got a friend who had never voted before, mm. because he said he'd never come across something important enough to vote for. And he has a couple of kids cares about those kids, researched it, decided that based on what he was hearing in the media, he needed to vote leave. And so he did. Yeah. How about you, Ben? Which way did you go? I voted Remain. Um, yeah, so I voted Remain. Um, I'm, that's Italian. Um, so Just taking the pen out of his hand? I'm playing with a pen. It's <laughs> going to take notes, but I'm not allowed to anymore. <laughs> um, so I've, I did vote Remain. Um, my background is that my father's Italian, um, so I've got inherently kind of European culture. We spent a lot of time out in Italy and we travelled around Europe and I just couldn't see leaving the EU as a way, I don't know how else to put it, uh, to better ourselves as a society, so like from a cultural standpoint. I wouldn't say politically, but I would definitely say just from an experience standpoint that leaving the European Union just wouldn't be good for us. But I think understanding what the European Union does and doesn't do was part of my process. I think also it was a guttural kind of feeling that I had as somebody who just wanted to embrace a bit more of an international community and reject the 
and I don't mean to use this terminology because it doesn't mean that everyone who voted Brexit feels like this, but this little England mm. mentality. Um, mm. I'm all for inclusivity, having you know different cultures coming in and out of the UK. I feel that in the transfer of knowledge, people, capital and everything else is fantastic. And I think that in a globalised world, whether we agree with globalisation or not, I'm sure we'll click on to that at some point. It's important to embrace more than just people that are like you or who look like you or sound like you. It's better to understand more about the world because at the end of the day, it's becoming a lot, 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 uh, a much much smaller place. Um, So for me, it was ideological a lot of the time that my my vote was to remain, but at the same time, it was what felt personal to me. It wasn't a political thing. It was definitely... You know, philosophical or you know whatever you want to call it. Emotional, it yeah, emotional. Thank mm. you. <laughs> but emotions generally outweigh; they trump facts as I agree. a rule. I agree. And I think that an awful lot of people, um, it was an emotional decision. I agree completely. I think emotionally, I think there has to be an element of facts in there as well. Um, and as I said, when I when I did re- I did research, I did my own research. But once again, as we were talking earlier, actually. Where we get our information from is incredibly important as well. You know, was I was I um, was I pushed into voting Remain because of the only areas of media that I was reading into? I'd say no, but a lot of people might have voted Remain or Leave based on the bubbles that they're in. Mm. I could say, and I, I don't mean to put us into this situation, but I'd say that we are in a bit of a liberal bubble. You know, we live in an area that voted Remain. Um, you know, we're all relatively uh, well-educated. Uh, we seem to hang around with like-minded enough people. And I was watching a video this morning in preparation for the podcast because I love to do my homework. And there was a gentleman today at the podcast, it was a TED Talk, who brought up, I can't remember the guy's name, um, but he brought up a map of the UK and showed the areas that voted Brexit and the areas that voted, you know, Remain, right? And it was Scotland, London, little snippets of, you know, um, Southern England and maybe the Midlands, but predominantly it was, you know, predominantly uh, Leave and then obviously Northern Ireland as well, which voted to, to vote, which overwhelmingly voted Remain. And the question that he posed was this, how many of us, or at least from his group of friends, had actually visited the areas that voted remain, uh, voted leave? So areas like Boston, for instance, or you know um, the areas of Wales, where I think it's Methotensdale, I'm pretty sure, um, somebody will fact check me on that one. All these places where they voted leave Sunderland, you know, how many of you guys spend a lot of time up there? How many of us know what's going up, what's going on there culturally? Mm. Or from an economic standpoint, you know, and I really think that the debate about Brexit is quite important. We need to understand what's happening with the other as well as what's happening in our little liberal bubble as well. We need to expand our horizons to understand each other. Anyway, I'm waffling. <laughs> and that's that's the reason for this this discussion to mm-hmm. me, because um, interestingly, I've got a friend that uh, that comes from Sunderland and now lives in Melbourne, and, and right. she was visiting a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about what's happening up there. Mm-hmm. And it is a different experience to what we're having in Brighton. I agree. Completely different. But I think this is also a function of the way in which it's presented. Because even now we've come down to immediately this notion that says there are those who benefited from being in the European Union and those that are disadvantaged by it. And the Brexit vote is being driven by those who've been disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. And, And actually... I speak to people in the southeast of England, the wealthiest part of the country, people who are very affluent, people who run big businesses, who are also Brexiteers, pro-Brexit, but nothing to do with being, um, you know, 
destitute, and it's all to do with opportunity and optimism and confidence and the idea that says, actually, we are being shackled by being attached to this huge, monolithic, bureaucratic, protectionist organisation, anti-democratic, that is over which we have relatively little influence and which is going in a direction that we don't want to go in. Because what people don't talk about very much when they talk about um, the European Union is the direction of travel. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the destination? Well, the people are driving the thing. The destination is a federated state, a European state. I mean, it's the United States of, of, of Europe where we sub subsume our national identity in favour of this supranational identity. And that's perfectly legitimate, but you have to make that decision that that's what you're prepared to do and understand the consequences of it. And we haven't had that debate. So, and I think that's a real issue. Um, We're not going to have that debate off Brexit goes ahead, though. I think, I think you're right in terms of European Union having a, an identity crisis. I think that, that at least the nations within the European Union, but then... How can I put I think I've said this before. When we consider a political um, a political relationship or just relationship generally, surely there's got to be discussion. And to turn around, I'm not saying that what you're saying is wrong, but to have a, a federalised European state would mean that all 28 at the moment members would have to, one, agree to it, and two, be happy with giving up their full national sovereignty. And I just don't think that any of the nations would be happy doing that. But that's what's happening. Mm, okay. That is the direction of travel. And that's about, that's the, you know, inevitably, if you have something like a euro, you need to have political, you need to have a political coming together in order to make that work. Mm. You're now having conversations about a European army and all this sort of stuff. I don't, I'm, I'm not convinced it has to be like that. I think you can get all the benefits of European, the European Union without necessarily doing that. And Macron, um, was coming up with the notion of two, a two-speed Europe and so on and so forth. So I think there are other models, but they're not talking about that at the moment. Mm. So I think this whole conversation about you know having a real understanding of what the options are for the European Union, so it's not just taking it for granted that it's going to be as it is currently, and similarly, not painting Brexit in this you know one-dimensional way. I think that I, I, I think you can make a really strong case for Brexit depending upon what you do as mm. a consequence of making that decision. Mm. And equally, I think you can make a, a very, very strong case for remaining, depending on who and what you do. I think if you reform Europe, I think you can make a very strong case. And if you have a re really positive, um, confident, outward-looking, philanthropic view about Brexit, that can work too. But we're not having those debates. We're just having this very tribalised debate where we're working with stereotypes. Mm. And... And also, it's and I think that brings back to education, our political system, uh, critical thinking, whether we're given, whether we can trust the information that we're being given. I don't think we can. Most people feel completely, I suspect, most people feel completely lost about the 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 the, the more substantive arguments, and therefore they end up operating on a purely emotional, gut, tribal basis. So let's yeah. so, so let's talk about how we got into this situation. I would actually bring up the point that was just made, which is critical thinking. It's incredibly important. Um, how many people, and this is generalisation, I just want to backtrack slightly. When I was talking about the areas that voted Brexit, I'm not saying that the people in those areas were not affluent, wealthy, or uh, well-educated. I think the point I was making was more about just my own perspective. Although I have family in the North East, actually, so I spent a bit of time up there. Um, 
we're in an echo chamber sometimes from a conversational standpoint um, when you're talking about Brexit, so it's quite nice to discuss this in a more open format is what I was meaning. Um, but to get to the point of critical thinking, um, you know, when you read a new, how many people have enough time to read a full newspaper article? So it could say something about immigration crisis, for instance, which you'll see in newspapers, um, you know, broadsheets or well, not broadsheets, but you know, um, I won't offend <laughs> but you'll see certain things that are about grabbing headlines and grabbing people's viewpoints and also clickbait as well to be honest with you which is a huge part where advertising is a massive impact I'm sure you guys know more about it than I do how many of us have enough time to really consider well what does that article mean when we read the article does it actually have the full facts does it not and I think fact checking in today's day and age is incredibly important but also incredibly difficult to find the book and whose responsibility is it it should be I think it's individually it's our own collective but it's difficult to know where to go to fact check because it's, it's, it's sort of, it's circular. So this is where, in education, I think we need to be teaching critical thinking, even if you're able to look. So I had a lecturer at university who um, who used to say that people's, we used to, there's a module called the skill of argument, how to argue and win, right? It's predominantly about the philosophy of logic, right? And essentially it was about conceptual, what he would say is that people don't have enough tools in their conceptual toolbox. So they'll come out with an argument, 90% of divorces end up, um, 90% of marriages end up in divorce where they only have sex once a week, right? Just just, just say that's an, that's an article. Next question that usually that he taught us, and what, which is the thing, is, well, why is that? It's the ability to just pick at it. And the conceptual toolboxes is usually there's one tool in there. Rather than being able to pick up a number of different tools and break down something or consider and deconstruct an argument, it's well, I just accept that that's what it is, isn't it? Well, you know, we've got to have sex more, <laughs> which is lovely. Um, but you think people don't always consider what's behind the headlines or what's within the media at the moment, and we as a society really should be teaching our children how to break these things down. Yeah, do you know, I'd like to, to draw on some examples from other countries as well. So if we use Italy, because you've got a fair bit of experience in that. Well, I would say my dad's Italian. I wouldn't say I've got that much experience. I can't even speak the language. <laughs> you know, I, I can understand bits of it. But Yeah, but I think you're being <laughs> modest though, because you've, you've got a connection to the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent a bit of time there recently, and something that fascinates me is the change that's happening in Italy over the last, and it's a long time, right? 2,000 years since the fall of Rome give or take, over that time, the literacy rates have gone up and now are dropping away more and more and more. So as the literacy drops down, the education level drops down, Mm -hmm. and it seems that things are becoming more polarized. And a lot of people there have expressed concern about that because people are no longer educated and able to get involved in critical thinking. Is that partially what's happening in England? I think there are a number of there are a number of things from my perspective. One is that the media you used to be able to rely on the media for much more analysis, and I think that's fallen away a lot. Um, you used to have the BBC used to have Panorama, for example, hour-long programmes. They'd invest in investigative journalism. They'd invest in deep analysis and so on and so forth. Um, there isn't a demand for it now. And therefore, they've now become half-hour programs. They can't sell the they can't sell the programs abroad, and therefore, the resources available for that sort of in-depth quality journalism um, is much more difficult to do. Fortunately, there's been a bit of a reaction to that now, and there are now new new newspapers that are setting up with a different financial model, mm. and you get. 
people like Jeff Bose, Jeff Bose, Bozo, whatever his name is, Bezos, Bezos, who's he bought the Washington Post. Yeah. So, so the Washington Post is now financially secure, and therefore they can afford to do things that perhaps they might not have been able to do. So I think that's starting to change a little bit. But I think it's the quality of the media. Secondly, it's this idea that says the media, their job is to inform you. Actually, it isn't. It's to make money. And the way they make money is by having, they appeal to their natural uh, hinterland, you know. And, mm. and if you can't go to them with the expectation of a balanced view. And um, so I think that's a major issue. So, And the second thing is we are not taught the second, third work. thing. We're not taught to work with complexity. Yeah. What did you say? The second, third thing. Okay, the second, third thing <laughs> is this notion about complexity. And, you know, we are brought up. Everything is simplified to the point where it's simplistic. And, you know, newspaper headlines, you have to have a headline that that sort of immediately catches the attention of your particular tribe. And complexity... I think is the far, you know, I think simplicity is the far side of complexity. You have to go through the process of understanding uh, in order to get a synthesizing, get to a simple sort of idea. And we aren't given those tools anymore. No, I agree. I, although I wouldn't say that I have those tools and use them every day either, to be honest with you. I would say that actually when I'm on the train going to work, I'm thinking about a million different things. You know, you're thinking not just about what's going on in the political zeitgeist at the moment. You're thinking about, you know, am I going to pay my mortgage or, uh, you which know, is, where am I going to go for dinner tonight? Which is, why <laughs> de- which is why we've delegated responsibility for this yeah. to members of parliament. Yeah. Who, you know, seem to be having a lot of fun during this process. Let's just talk about that as a factor. Yeah. Let's talk about the the quality and the performance of the political system in England at the moment and and how that's been a factor in this situation. Well, I have a view, as we all do. Um, It just seems to me that in every area of our lives, there's been huge transformational change, with the exception of a couple of areas, one of which is our political system. You know, every other aspect of our life, if you go back 10 years and you look at your life, you look at your mobile phone or your computer or the way in which people were thinking about stuff, and it would be very different to the way you think about it now. But our political system doesn't seem to have changed you know, significantly, um, with the exception of there are now more professional politicians in our system than ever before. People who's mm-hmm. who are dependent upon being in a political party in order to get you know promotion in their careers and to pay for their mortgages and so on and so forth. And I think, and also this whole notion of the revolving door between uh, top civil servants and ministers and MPs and big business. And so that whole area. I'm sure it's always been like that. I'm sure it's always been a bit corrupted, but it's just much more transparent now. We can see what's going on with more clarity now uh, with the internet and so on, and therefore become more shocked by it, perhaps. So that's one thing. I think in terms of the performance politically, there's a lot less, you know, there's a lot, you know, a lot more can come from it, I think, actually. I think the way that the politicians have handled the current Brexit situation and I suppose I'll just stick with the Brexit situation because my opinion is wide-reaching. <laughs> There's no point in uh, thinking of other things. But I don't have much confidence in the political system at the moment. I feel that it's broken. I do feel that there are career politicians. I do feel that, actually, as a matter of fact, the Brexit debate has been more about political point scoring, or at least that's what it seems to be, uh, rather than actually considering the national interest. Um, so, for instance, I... I quite happily would say that I'm a left-wing, you know, probably a Labour supporter. 
right? Um, but I haven't been happy with the way Jeremy Corbyn has acted, for instance. He's been quite quiet and then motioned a table of vote of no confidence that didn't actually trigger anything other than just a, I don't know, other than it was just essentially a political game, a political game of chess, which he seems to have lost at the moment. And I feel that generally the way that politics has been represented, it doesn't give me confidence, and I can't imagine it's not given anybody either in this room or you know, in the wider community much confidence. And as a result, how are we going to have confidence in this Brexit process? There isn't any. And this is why we have a people's vote and people wanting to continue with this, you know, we're only 1-0 down, it's half time, and we should have another vote to see whether we equalise or not. But then what's going to happen? They're going to have a penalty shootout afterwards to decide who actually wins or not. Because nobody's really taken this. Taken this um, I, I'm not going to call it an opportunity because I don't think it is an opportunity, but nobody's taken this political situation and really grabbed it by the scruff of the neck and said, right, we're going to lead through this and we're going to deal with it. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm just an average guy in the street. But Politicians are well remunerated, and as you said, they are meant to reflect who we are as a society, and they are not doing that, at least from the Brexit standpoint. But again, I think what Brexit has done from my perspective is it just demonstrates the fact that our political system is no longer fit for purpose. Because actually, Brexit is an existential threat to all the parties. Mm. Because again, they're split down the middle, and they always have been. Completely. And how can you have a situation where you can come to a consensus about anything if you are split like that? And people are being forced to, they can't vote with their conscience. Um, I, I just think it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a mess. And I think we need to have, we need reform in our political system. So what does that look like? Well, well, let me give you the example from the other two places I've lived. So New Zealand and Australia have gone through the similar sort of processes as has been here. Red, 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 blue, 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 red, blue, 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 red, blue. And here we are, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, although the, pa- the parties are called different things, and although New Zealand has embraced um, MMP, as they call it, and which is more of a ma- um, multi-member participation and one member, one vote, okay. one constituency, one representative straight into parliament, rather than the first-past-the-post system that we have here, mm-hmm. which effectively keeps us to a two-party majority, right? with sometimes a third player that that gets into a coalition. Mm. Um, I just think that it is abundantly clear in New Zealand and Australia, also the time that I've spent in Canada and in the States recently, they have the same problem. The red-blue system just isn't representative enough. I think it supports career politicians, to your point, Ben, and, and I think it hasn't evolved, to your point, Jeremy. Well, you have, I mean, apparently we've got people in our parliament who've been sitting MPs continuously for 40, 49 years. You know, I mean, that's just crazy. If you look at guys like Jacob Rees-Mogg, for instance, this guy, you know, I don't know how long he's been a politician for, but he's an ever-present in Parliament, isn't he? Maybe he's really good at what he does. Um, and it's, it's well, he's got his, he's not, he's he's got got his, his own job as well. He's, he's, got a, he's got a wealth management company or something. Wrong. So I think at least he's got other experience. A large proportion of MPs have never done anything else. Has Richmond got a... Yeah, he has. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. I actually got, didn't know that. Yeah, I, mean, I, I was just he, using him as an he, example. He invests people's money, I believe. Does he? But, but <laughs> I'm sure he does it all sustainably <laughs> and ethically. But, but, but there, are, there are alternatives <laughs> that people are ex- experimenting with. Um, but again, it comes back to the media and it comes back to vested interests mm. who don't give much airtime to these things. Mm. 
I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think this is really good because it, it connects into some of the media stuff and the Facebook stuff we've talked about. Mm. Because the media, like you're saying, it is an area that's been transformed and is transforming like, like Bezos buying, um, buying the, the Washington Post and like Facebook becoming the place that you find out um, that there's been a disaster in the world rather than necessarily turning on the BBC. Do you think that that transformation of the media and moving towards social media and instant media, if we can call it that, online, is a good thing? And do you think that it's it's building um, critical thinking or do you think that it's actually simplifying things? I, I would ask you guys, because what you said earlier actually was the fact that media, um, which is completely right, is you know the main basis is to make money. You know, newspapers want to sell newspapers, they sell advertising space and they make money. So how do you do that? Well, clickbait is one of those things. But to, you know, how how fair is it? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't have a Facebook or a Twitter. I have a LinkedIn, and that's about it, right? So I'm one of those young foxes who have rejected, I'm not technology, but at least social media. I did have it and decided to get rid of it. Generally, just because I couldn't be bothered with it. So my news, where I get my news from is predominantly, as we were discussing earlier, you know, I'll read newspapers, um, I'll go on YouTube, I'll look at different sources, but there is a tailoring in the online, there is a massive tailoring. So for instance, when I'm looking online, if I'm on YouTube, I'll have something that will suggest, oh, you'll, you'll be interested in this because you watch this. And eventually you go down, you don't really go down a rabbit, you get, go down a rabbit hole, but it's a real, really structured rabbit hole. And as I said, I'm somebody who's left-leaning, who, you know, has his own viewpoint in terms of, you know, my political affiliation, what I think about economics and all that kind of stuff. And as a result, I'll be shown videos that will usually confirm my own biases. And the problem is, is having your own biases confirmed means that, as I said at the start, we have our own little echo chambers. And being in these little echo chambers means that we are never able to consider what other people's point of view is. Mm. So then when you go and read maybe um, an opposite news, so if I read The Guardian, I'll read The Daily Mail completely different viewpoints but to be honest with you this is a slightly off the topic but but am i getting truth from either probably not can you match halfway in between the truth probably not either so where are we getting our information from buddy knows i don't know do i think social media is a good thing i don't use it but it could be if it was a bit fairer but you guys as marketeers could tell me you know what why this is the <laughs> well, what's what's interesting, I think, is that Facebook is in decline. They've finally admitted that in their primary market of young young adults in the states. They mm. are in decline. Um, they're getting, um, I believe, it's now a third of their income comes from um, Instagram, and really? uh, so people have moved from Facebook and having lots and lots of friends and being everybody's friend and in inverted commas over to Instagram, where it's more about sharing images and beautiful things, and uh, and short clips. And uh, so that's already changing. The lifestyle you want everyone to think that you have, basically. Touche. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think if you, if you want to have um, real um, proper debate about these sort of things, I think there are other things that need to be in place. First of all, I think there's a disconnect between um, what people do and consequences, what people say and consequences. So you have at the moment a situation where a member of parliament or somebody else can say something that is deliberately misleading. And they get away with it. And it's reported in the press. And there are no consequences. And, you know, classic cases, Boris Johnson, the Brexiteers. I mean, I think they've done a huge disservice, actually, to the whole Brexit argument because it's painted the whole movement as being made up of these carpetbaggers and charlatans. Um, And they were able to make outrageous claims. And there's never been a consequence. Like the bananas. 
like the bananas, like the three hundred and fifty million yeah. pounds a week savings and so on. So forth. Yeah, but actually, it's not just. In fairness, it's not just in the political system. It's in the whole of our society. There's this disconnect between mm. action and consequences, and the lack of personal responsibility. Yeah, and I think that's mm. a fundamental, a fundamental problem, and particularly when you have the situation where in politics it's this link between politicians and vested interests, and you have professional lobbyists, professional lobby firms, who are paid by organisations to put their point of view. And they can outgun everybody else because they just have the money. And everything starts to be driven by how, how much money you've got. So let's just bring this back to tax for a moment because um, I have a small amount of understanding and I have a, a fair uh, understanding that you have a lot more, Ben. Um, is that why we're seeing a shift in the UK government policy from small business to large business, where they're cutting the corporate tax rate but increasing the, the net for taxation of micro business and small business because big business has lobby the issue around um large business being um overly influential in driving government policy and driving brexit i think is really really interesting because again if you read the newspapers you listen to the commentary it's almost as though the only thing that was important was trade and economics and I think that when you're looking at the future of your country and you're making these fundamental decisions that are going to be intergenerational, multi-generational, it shouldn't just be about you know, the short-term benefit to your shareholders. There's got to be something much more aspirational, something much more visionary in there. You know, it is, there is this emotional thing. And I think one of the biggest failures that there's been is we had the vote at the referendum that identified us an absolute split down the middle within the country. And absolutely nothing has been done since to try and square that circle and get some sort of consensus so that we're all on the same page. We know who we're negotiating against and we can do it in a sort of single-minded way. I mean, all the basic rules of negotiation or sort of um, transformational change of any kind, uh, we've, we've broken all those rules. We haven't tried to create a consensus. We haven't tried to bring people together. We haven't created a vision for which everybody can get behind. And I think that's been an absolute disaster. How important, but how difficult is that going to, would that well, be? Well, I think within our current political system, it's almost, it is almost impossible. Yeah. But you could have had someone like, like uh, Theresa May on day one saying, look, this is the biggest crisis that we've had in our country since the Second World War. We need to start by understanding that we need a government of national unity, for example. Mm. And you, you do it on a bi, you know, sort of a bipartisan, take a bipartisan approach. And you have a, you know, bring the people into the tent who can add the value. Well, Labour, just on that point, Labour has said that they would have worked more with Theresa May had she asked. And they had their 16 points in which they were. And then you say, well, why didn't she? Yeah, well, this is the thing, though, because it becomes... Because of the political system. Yeah, but it also it's easy and it's easy for Labour to say that we would have worked with okay, Theresa May but the well, bottom line think, is, actually. <laughs> if, you accept, if you accept, if you're put in the country before party, mm. and if you accept that this isn't, this is an intergenerational thing, it's not a, you know, the, the parties are split down the middle. It's a, it's a, an existential threat to all of them. Mm -hmm. There are a group of people at the centre who would have been prepared to come together. This, and, I, and I think you, and there are other ideas that you can add to this, which is about... You know, if you bring a referendum in, the idea of asking a highly complex, trying to reduce a highly complex series of questions to one is just barking. I mean, how anybody could expect that to give you any sort of sensible answer, 
I've no idea. But you could have had a couple of questions and they could have been sequential. Like in or out? Okay, out. What sort of out? And suddenly, but this idea that says you've got to have an instant solution to everything, I find just a bit bizarre. You wouldn't do that in, in business. You wouldn't do that. You go through a process, a sequential process. And why they wouldn't apply that sort of thinking in this situation, I don't really know. And, and I mean, let's use an example that a lot of people are familiar with, buying a house or buying a car. Mm-hmm. It is a sequential process, isn't it? it and the idea that says, you know, with, when you get new information, you're not allowed to change your mind. You know, if you suddenly go to buy a house, you suddenly find it's got dry rot and you decide, actually, maybe I shouldn't be offering, you know, £500,000 for it. I should be offering £200,000 because I've got to completely renew it from the ground up. That's quite a sensible thing to do. What you're pointing towards, though, is what actually Caroline Lucas has brought that a similar point up about buying a house, actually. And she is. Channel 4. She's the, international um, sorry. Yeah, she's the, um, I think she's the leader of the Green Party or she's a, a Green M- the only Green MP in Parliament. Um she made the same point in regards to having uh, buying a house. What would you do? Will you find out there's dry rot or you find there's a crack in the wall or something? Should I offer more or less or should we not take it either? Anyway, and I actually think that that points towards having a people's vote. And the, there is an issue with that because a lot of people are resistant to having a people's vote. Let's well, talk about that because I think that's really a good thing to explore. Well, yeah, essentially people's vote is to allow people to consider the new deals. At the moment, the deal at the moment, and also whether no Brexit is the uh, other alternative or whether we should say re- remain in the European Union. Now, the questions haven't been set as far as I'm aware, um, but there is a push towards that, and there have been newspapers latching on to comments um, from ministers who have said that, well, if there is no alternative, we might consider a people's vote. Not to say that that is the point that is the point that they wanted to go with, but they were just saying, look, you know, this is this is something that could be seen as a feasible option. A lot of people are really wanting this uh, people's vote, but I'm just going to jump on onto a point of if we have a people's vote, it brings me back to the point of we're one nil down as a remainer. We're one nil down. Is it half time or is it full time? Because at the moment, people seem to think it's half time. Okay, we get to one one. Then what happens? Well. We vote remain. But, but that's, that's only because the initial work hasn't been done in terms of deciding what the questions are and giving people appropriate information. But should there if be questions? Have... Should we allow should we allow Brexit to happen or should we just allow it to happen? Which I agree would in my opinion would be quite catastrophic. Or do we or do we go for the people's vote option? I've got the statistics, not statistics, but the people who voted leave were over 17 million, so it's 51.89%. Remain was 16 over 16 million, it's 48.11%, right? Of and, the population. Okay, and there were more, almost as many people were registered who didn't vote yeah, as voted for and voted against. I think so. And in addition to that, it was. And in addition to that, you've got all the other people who aren't registered. So actually, it was only a small mind. Actually, it was about a third of the population. Well, it was a 72% turnout out of 46 million people who were registered to vote in the UK. I think that's the correct statistics. Somebody can check that as well. But what I would say is that it is an overwhelming majority of people did turn out to vote. But also, there is an overwhelming majority of people who did vote to leave. And that is, you're talking the, the gap between leave and remain is over a mil- just over a million people. It's just 1.3 million, I think. I'm not great at math. <laughs> But you're looking at that's a lot of people. That's Hold on, because I, I, I checked it out. Fact check me. I did. Go on. <laughs> we had a seventy-two percent turnout. I was right. Nearly as many people registered and didn't vote as voted for either Brexit or Remain. Interesting. Okay. So, so what does that tell us? What it tells us, well, 
a lot of people aren't engaged in the process, mm-hmm. number mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the, the this this idea that says we understand why people voted the way they voted is nonsense as well. I'm mm-hmm. not sure that statistic tells you that, but that was just my <laughs> my supposition. But it's it's this notion that people aren't engaged. And I and I remember when I was living in London, they did a, a census. Were things in black and white at that moment? Ah, they were indeed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, they had a census. And I got this letter that said, you've got to fill out who lives in your house and all this sort of stuff. It's very important. And I didn't. And I got a reminder and I didn't. And eventually I had some woman knock on the door and she came into my house and I sat there and I filled out the form with her because the government had sent people around to ensure that they got the answer because it was considered important. Then I had another questionnaire coming from the local council asking about you know, about parking zones and whether we wanted a parking zone. And I got this thing asking for my vote, which I didn't fill in. Next thing I do, I get a letter saying we're now all a designated parking area. And when I rang them and said, you know, uh, why we, why we, why have we suddenly got this parking? So they said, oh, we had a vote, and ninety-eight percent of people voted in favour of having a resident parking zone. I said, how many people was that? And so it was ninety-eight percent. I said, but how many people? And they said, six. Really I said, what? I said, six people voted in favour? Yes. Out of how many houses? 250. I said, what about the next street? And it was something similar. And the difference was actually one in one situation, they genuinely wanted people's opinion. They wanted a Democrat or they, they needed the information. In the other, they didn't. But- and in terms of the referendum, it's the same. For me, one of the key responsibilities of government is to educate its population such that they can make, if they're going to ask them to take part in a referendum, surely they should have a responsibility to ensuring that the people are properly equipped to do it or don't do it. But they, you could say that there was a lot of information around there. Well, okay, maybe a lot of misinformation, um, which I would say on both sides, especially in the. In the uh, but in you the can kill. Side. You can kill people with information. Okay. There's, there's huge, huge amounts of, of noise, but not very much light. So what's what? Would, what would your source well, have been? I, again, I come back to this notion in. Australia, they've, they're experimenting with things like citizens' assemblies, mm-hmm. where at random, they choose 600 people or 500 people at random in the same way you might for a juror, jury service. They get some experts in a room and they give them the information over a period of days and they allow this assembly to come to a consensus. And they did the same in Ireland with the referendum around abortion and other things. And it's goes back to the ancient Greek tradition of democracy, which is isigoria, which is the notion that says you get people together and they are committed to the most effective solution. They're not wedded to one tribe or another. They're committed to coming up with the best solution. So, Ollie, if you have an idea and I don't agree with you, my job in that situation is to help you articulate the best expression of your argument that's possible. And then you do the same for me. And people make their decision based on that. And if anybody tries to manipulate the outcome through sophistry or eloquence, they are ostracised, which is the way the word ostracised comes from, which means they're thrown out of the city. So Boris Johnson would have been thrown out of the city. Now, it just seems to me that's highly intelligent. And you say, well, that's not possible in the 21st century. Listen, you go on to... um, Top of the not top of the pops, but you know Britain make you know great. What is it called? Britain got talent. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> I don't know, watch TV. You know this mass media <laughs> populist stuff. You know Britain got drones. talent. <laughs> I can I can go on the phone and I can vote on the phone or on my computer or on my iPhone yeah. for some singer or some actor or something. Why on earth can't we 
start using technology and social media and all these tools and all this sophistication and all this knowledge to allow people to vote. I have to admit that uh, I my, agree, actually. No, I yeah, my girlfriend and I have come to an agreement that I'll stop all the time talking about how technology can fix these things. <laughs> you might understand where that comes from, Jeremy, having spent a bit of time around <laughs> me on some of these episodes. But I totally agree with you. But there are other aspects as well. There's a, a whole area of, of direct democracy where, let's say for the sake of argument, and I'm, I'm not an expert in this, but they are experimenting with these ideas in various places, mm. where if you feel particularly strongly about a subject and want to represent people, you can represent people just on that subject. So I can give you my vote. If you have a particular view about Brexit, and I agree with you, I transfer my vote to you, and other people will too. And then you become a representative for that point of view. And it might be that you have a, a different view about something else, and I don't agree with you. So I give that vote to somebody else, or I vote myself. And can I give you an example of that? So um, this might be more of a New Zealand-Australian thing, but uh, the idea of cradle to grave, or cradle to cradle, um, being that you that Ben manufactures a washing machine, you buy the washing machine, and then I dispose of it in my in my um, wastewater plant or waste waste plant. That's not a good idea. Ben should be responsible for the grave aspect of that washing machine. Now, that idea of make the manufacturer responsible for the recycling did not take up at a at an international level or at a national level in Australia or New Zealand at least. But it did take off at the council level. So the council parishes got together as an international assembly, and there is an assembly of international parishes and councils, and they decided that they would make it their law locally that in their parish, if you sell a washing machine, you're responsible for the, re the collection and recycling of that washing machine. And they drove change at a collective local level. You see, I think that's really interesting because I think there are other developments that, I mean, the whole area of behavioural insight and uh, the, the sort of the depth of understanding that there is now in terms of how you how people think and how you can use the way in which they think to drive the behaviours that you want. So, I mean, David Cameron introduced a, a behavioural uh, insight unit into the, into the Cabinet Office. And they're sort of starting to use some of that thinking to try and drive behaviours to get best practice in, you know, I mean, people who are unemployed and all sorts of, to get the sort of behaviours that you want. And that thinking, why can't they apply that to this problem that we've got, which is called Brexit, or this problem that we call a democratic system that's broken and needs to be reconstituted? It just seems to me that when I listen to podcasts about Brexit or I listen to Question Time or any political programme, the people you don't want to be listening to are the politicians. It's always the other people on the panel more interesting. who are interesting, yeah. who are open-minded. They're not wedded. They're not tied to this sort of tribal thing. And it, and, it, and it made me start thinking about our political system generally. Who are our MPs? What sort of people are they? Why is it that these are the people being elected? What have they got in common? Are they the most appropriate people to be MPs? And why are some of the people that we know and respect not using their skills by becoming an MP? Exactly. Some would argue that they constitute more change outside of a chamber in Westminster and do things better, you know, as an as a individual, not wedded by the whip, for instance, or party political affiliations, which is dangerous. And I think in Brexit, it's one thing that actually needed us to forgo our political affiliations and ensure that we get involved in the national interest, whether that, whatever that may be. Um, I, 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 I have nothing to say other than, other, other than complete agreement with you in terms of what, what you're saying. In terms but the of the interesting thing is there are, there are people out there who are doing stuff. Um, 
Yanis Varoufakis has got this organization called DM25, which is around transparency and accountability within on a pan-European basis. And he's using many of these principles. You've got uh, Gina Miller, whatever you think, has um, set up an organization called, um, what is it called? I can't remember anymore. (laughs) It's called um, End the Chaos. And she's actually trying to present sort of, you know, information to people you know she's trying to give people um do a job which i think the government should be doing actually we've got a good an audit office is it some audit office that what's the audit office that that checks government um, um budgets and things oh uh office of national statistics no it's not um oh. and well they're whatever they're they're independent this is where google comes in I they're independent and they're legally required to give best advice aren't they yeah they are it's i can't remember the name and why though. can't we have an organization that does that in the political realm. So when Boris Johnson comes along and says something to patently lie... Well, there are organisations like Full Facts, for instance. Are um, they, are they le- do they have a legal standing? No, they don't have Can a legal standing. Can they hold people accountable? This is the thing. They hold people accountable by their members, I suppose. Yeah. Um, you, know, you watch Question Time and they'll say, well, look, the facts are well, this. Uh, which, which at least, in a way, creates some sort of independence. I think if they, were, if they had a legal responsibility... Can you just repeat that? Because Jeremy just wrestled... Oh no, it's fine. Um, <laughs> I was scratching. So I'll, I'll repeat. <laughs> the bit, it was a, yeah, full full facts. Well, um, you know, an organisation that are not legally binding, but essentially they are an organisation that will check all the facts of you know that politicians and you know even in the media use, and they will say, well, this is the factual basis of it or not. Um, and what budget have they got for promotion? N- no idea. But what I would none. S- yeah, they they rely on donations. Um, well, but that's the point. Yeah. See, if you really like want, if you think yeah. it's essential for your democracy, for people to be given the facts in an unbiased way, so they can make, and it doesn't have to be one view, but they can, they can balanced view, so they can present both arguments in the sort of Isagoria sort of tradition. Mm-hmm. The government should be funding that, you know. Not it's, not it's not the government's best interest, though, is it? Well, but I, but particularly saying, when they're career politicians, correct, who are interested in point scoring, correct. I'm, I'm not saying I disagree. Which is why, which is why the system's broken. <laughs> yeah, it completely. But you can yeah. take it out of the system, and I mean, in the same way, the audit office is yeah. taken out of the system. The judiciary is taken out of the system. So I think, but at the moment, I mean, going back to this whole idea of political lobbying, the idea that they're now identifying that there are various parties in America who are funding these think tanks, tanks. You know, and there's some very, very um, influential think tanks out there that nobody knows who's funding them. And when they're asked, they won't tell anybody. And it's becoming clear that it's people like the Mercers and the Koch brothers, who are Americans, for Christ's sake, who are paying for all this sort of stuff. Well, it brings me back to the point of what you're talking about, Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post. Now, why did he buy that newspaper? Surely that, from what I've seen on um, YouTube um, uh, talk shows and you know, uh, news, uh, news outlets, that he's used that um, website where you can't really give any bad press about him. You can't you know, really talk about Jeff Bezos in a bad light. You can talk about Trump in a bad light because they two hate each other. Um, and I think, once again, it's the media and big business kind of getting together and creating a narrative that they want everyone else to buy into as well. And it's dangerous when somebody... I think, personally, it's dangerous when somebody that large is able to buy a newspaper. But I think... Actually, I've lost my point. <laughs> well, I think it's bad. If it, he, I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with him buying a newspaper, providing it's not the only one. And you've got lots of newspapers, and you've got lots of diversity. Yeah, completely. But then, you, sorry, actually, the point I was going to make was, and 
you do have diversity, but it, it, you don't know what the individual actor is and what the actual intentions are behind a person like him, you know, who's a multi-billionaire who, you know, owns owns a news outlet. But then you do have, in America, a track record of money in politics, which essentially creates, you know, the same kind of system that we have, but a lot more based on steroids, which is mm. congressmen, you know, senators are going to view, um, are going to vote for the do- on the donors rather than the people. So if you look at the gun lobbying, for instance, the NRA, um, you know, you've got all these mass shootings um, in America, Sandy Hook, what happened in Florida, you know, um, and other, you know, and other uh, uh, atrocities have happened. You know, why have we got, why have they not got rid of guns? Well, because the national, the NRA are a massive lobby who are paying thousands or millions of pounds to politicians to ensure that they keep their vested interests, you know, irrelevant. And it's the same in this country in some respects where big business is able to lobby and bring out, you know, the worst of our politicians. So what's the solution? Well, in America, there's potential solutions of getting money out of politics. So, for instance, I watch a thing called The Young Turks, which is... um, uh, They call themselves a progressive progressive news outlet... Um, the points in there that I agree and disagree with, but they're quite interesting. They've got a thing called Wolf Pash, uh, Wolf da- uh, Wolf Wolf Pack, which is a way of um, getting money out of politics and lobbying for money to not be used uh, when uh, the primaries come around and things like that. Whether that actually happens or not, I don't know, but I think it's the only way in which you can have more representative democracy. But what's know. happening in the states is that's actually reversed that, and actually it's getting worse. The judiciary are taking off constraints on political donations as opposed to putting them on. And Trump is in the lead of all that, but it was happening prior to Trump. Well, yeah, but then successive governments like Obama, though, even though, you know, I'm quite happy with Barack Obama, everyone most, you know, his government, who was he funded by? Well, Goldman Sachs, he had a lot of. So we're just going to cut that piece out. So let's just go back to the bit that you started talking, Ben. Yeah, um, so you've got you've got a lot of big businesses, big banks, big um, institutions that are essentially um, uh, you know funding these the Koch brothers. Yeah, Koch brothers. Yeah, spent exactly. Seven hundred million dollars in the last election, and I can give you an example of from from my buying power. It is. Carry on, sorry. So, so my my little homeland, New Zealand, um, again has quite a, an interesting take on this, and so there is now a limit to political contributions to a mainstream party in the course of an election and campaigning. Well, in theory, there is here. everything. Yeah. But in theory, there is here too. And now they're discovering that those rules are being broken. Ah. And it comes back to this thing about con- uh, you know, um, consequences. So Aaron Banks apparently um, is being accused of taking money from the States and possibly from Russia. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Um, but certainly the Leave campaign have been proven to be spending more money than they should have done and not declaring it. Where's the consequence of all this? Now, hopefully there will be one, but it's always much later. It's a bit like yes. a football match that's where fine, somebody yeah. fouls and gets a penalty, does it, and they discover it afterwards, but the goal's still scored. They've still created the points. They've still won the war. You know, They've still got away with it. And there seems to be too much of that. I agree. There's, there's no... Accountability. Yeah. None whatsoever. Okay. So let's just take a summary of where we've got to so far. Well, the main main takeout for you. I mean, what's your what's the thing that struck you most from what's been said? Okay. So I think the main thing for me is that how did we get to the situation we're in with Brexit? And the, the contributing factors being... Um, now, we haven't talked so much about... Um, the gap between rich and poor. We haven't talked so much about the old fox, young fox thing and the old and the young. 
um, but we have talked a lot about the political process, the media process, and the um, and business involvement in both of those processes. How about for you? What's been the main thing so far? Um, for me, the, the the key things that stick out for me are the fact that actually, um, if the process had been handled differently, we could have a very different sort of result. But the structures that surround it just aren't really fit for this sort of situation. And I think it needs to be because we're now in the 21st century and we're operating with institutions that were created in the 18th and 19th century or in some cases the 20th century. But, you know, with all the other things that have changed, I just wish that there was a bit more creative thinking um, and imagination and more consensus around stuff rather than this. Uh, I was intrigued by I had a, a meeting with some people re- recently who one of them was a member of parliament. And they were talking about when you go to Parliament, one of the most shocking things is the sort of visceral hatred that there is between the different parties. You know, it's, and it is it is tribal and it is aggressive and it is and you can't get any sort of creative thinking in that and consensus because the institutions don't allow it. And I just think that's tragedy. Because why would anybody with any intelligence want to go and work in that sort of environment? And if you did, you wouldn't survive and great ideas don't survive. And you're just driven into this situation, which we have now, where we're coming up with really, really suboptimal solutions. Mm, agreed. Ben, what have you taken from this? I think generally for me, it's about the way in which information is spread across you know, society and how we all digest it, really. I think... Brexit generally um, has, well, Brexit as well as other votes around the world, especially in America, have highlighted the decay of knowledge um, or the hunger for gaining factual um, factual information and information that's been checked and thoroughly re- vetted for you to actually digest it. Nowadays, my opinion is that we generally don't have time for it don't have a hunger for it and actually we've been read, led, led down a bit of a garden path in that respect because of the media we consume and how we consume it. I think you know we've touched on how we could potentially change that and I think that's been the most important and quite interesting aspect for me so far. Let's talk about populism and let's <laughs> let's just touch some more on, this, on the states. Yeah, so, uh, so if you want me to start, I suppose populism... See, I have an interest, I don't know... I'm having to formulate my thought as I'm talking to you because actually, in my opinion on That's it, all that we do, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really, you know, it's, which is good. I'm in the right space then. I think populism is through the guise of how you look at it. I think, for me, Trump, his narrative throughout the uh, the, the elections, um, you know, the, the selection process and him as a president is about populism. It's conjuring fear, it's building a wall, it's separating me or you f- from the other person. It's creating an other effect to ensure that essentially we're always bloody scared, right? We're just continually scared. And I suppose you can consider 1984 as a really good example of that. You know, we're, we're at war with uh, Eurasia, we're at war with, you know, uh, Australasia, we're at war with, you know, whatever. And, you know, the narrative changed straight away and people were quite happy to, to, to believe it. And populism, yeah, it's something that can we, can we say, this is my question to you guys, do you think Brexit was a result of populism? You know, the danger 
is it, is it dangerous or yeah? So let's just scrap that complete um, thought process just for a second. Can we scrap that? <laughs> because, yeah. um, I think populism itself is you know is, is something that is now part of the political language, and you know it'll be quite interesting to know what you guys think of the kind of populist. Um, the populist movement throughout Europe as well as in the UK, whether that what brought about Brexit. What do you mean by populist? So I think essentially it's populism. It's for me, it's being okay. An example would be um, the picture of uh, migrants crossing the border into Turkey from Turkey into the, to the European Union that the Leave campaign um, put up and said, "Well, this is what's going to happen." Now. Immigration in Europe, the whole point of the European Union uh, project was to allow the free movement of people. What that usually, what that meant was that people from in, uh, from Italy, from uh, um, you know uh, Germany, France, were able to cross the border without any issues and you know spread their information or spread you know their their skills and you know assimilate culture and basically bring everything you know uh, kind of, uh, holistically and just kind of bring everything together. Like for me what the attack was actually saying, well, people from outside the European Union are now able to come into the European Union and they are brown. Um, I, me as a black person, right? I can, I'm not going to say I can say it, but to be honest with you, that's what I felt. Um, somebody who is mixed race, I felt that it was a lot of brown faces on that on that poster. And what that was, was essentially creating fear of other. They don't look like European Union nationals, do they? Now, you could look at me and say, I'm not a European Union national, but I have a father that's Italian, <laughs> Right. It's about the perception. For me, that was populism. That is saying, well, look, the popular fear at this point in time is of the other person. We will harness and galvanise that in order to make you scared, in order for you to vote in the way that we would like you to do that. That's how I see populism. Trump's populism, once again, if you consider it's the same type of narrative, let's look at the Mexicans, people crossing the border, or people from coming from, I think it's from Honduras, I think it is, or I can't remember exactly. But once again, it's the other people coming into our land now, just let's break outside of the fact that America was founded on immigrants, by immigrants. Everyone seems to have a Scottish, Irish, you know, um, different type of, you know, uh, background in America. So it's founded on immigration. So the whole premise of actually stopping people from coming into a nation kind of baffles me a little bit. But once again, it's the fear and making people, you know, uh, making people afraid of people that don't look like them or sound like them or pray like them or, you know, view life like they do. And that's what I think populism is to me. So. I think to a degree it's been... I mean, the cause of it was essentially the failure of sort of neoliberal economics. The idea that the market can determine everything about not necessary to have regulation, the whole globalisation bit, the idea that if you get a small group of people who get very rich, there'll be a trickle-down effect and everybody will benefit... And that's been something that's been promoted for the last 20, 25 years. And it's proven not to work. And yeah. as a consequence, you then have things like um, the financial crash because the banks are out of control because there's no regulation and there's corruption and so on and so forth and all this sort of stuff. So suddenly you get 8 million people in the, in the States losing their homes and all this sort of stuff. And you create, and that's not just in the States, but it happened in Europe as well because you know, Britain was in the forefront of promoting this sort of economic policy. Um, and I think that creates the state, it creates a, a, a vacuum where people suddenly don't trust the authorities anymore and they're desperate for change. And I think an awful lot of what we've seen over the last 10 years is people kicking the man. You know, it's just kicking the man. I don't trust these people. They're all shits. They're all out for themselves. They're all this, they're all that. 
and it just creates this vacuum. And, and that's a really good point because into that vacuum stepped Trump. And not just Trump, but across Europe, you have certain people who are carpetbaggers who just step into the vacuum promising people yep. that they are on their side. And I read a very interesting article about Trump and it was about how is it possible that someone like Trump where his base can be largely very ultra-conservative Christians, where everything the man stands for seems to be anti-Christian. And the guy's a complete carpetbagger, whatever. And it's this thing about, at least he's ours. You know, he might be a shit, but he's our shit. And he's better to have, he's one of us as opposed to one of them. Therefore, they will forgive him all sorts of stuff. And you can look around Europe and you can see other people of, of a similar ilk stepping into the vacuum. Berlusconi. Yeah, and the guy in Hungary, mm -hmm. whose name I can't remember, and you've got similar sorts of things happening in Poland, you've got similar things happening in France and in Greece, yeah. and Varoufakis, the ex-Greek finance minister, made a really, really, I thought, important point with regards Brexit, which was, and it's this thing about whether, you know, we as Britain have a responsibility that's broader than just simply looking after our own vested short-term self-interest. And at the moment, we are aligned to the progressive democratic centre of Europe, a group of nations who have a certain common set of standards that we've had, had for many hundreds of years. And it's about democracy and it's about freedom. And it's about, you know, certain values. And by taking one brick out of that wall, we make the whole edifice that much less stable. And that is frightening for all of us. Because there are many commentators who are suggesting that many of the circumstances that, pre, that just came before the 1930s, we're sort of recreating them or recreating an extraordinarily unstable society. This is the last moment when actually we should be stepping out of that and we should be in there fighting for democratic values and fighting for reform within the European Union. And Do you think that we've seen um, that destabilizing um, influence playing out in some of the other, particularly Western European um, economies. Absolutely. Mm. You look at anywhere, you look at, you look at the Podemos movement in Spain, yeah. you look at... Yellow jackets the, in France, for yeah. instance. Yeah. Well, well, <laughs> well, it is. It is, all, it is all people feeling frightened. Disillusioned. And disillusioned. They don't know who to trust. They don't know who to go for. And who's... You know, normally you say, you know, cometh the hour, cometh the man. And cometh Trump, you know. You think Jesus, but Trump, Trump to me though, Trump is the elite. Trump, this is the so that's you know, Trump, the that's the rub. Yeah, Trump being elected is you know we're going to drain the swamp was his narrative, wasn't it? Oh, he is the swamp. He's a billionaire apparently. Um, so the people he has in his office, the people that he mixes with, they're not farmers in the Midwest. The people in New York, there are people who are incredibly wealthy, who have a lot of influence, who have political influence as well. He was friends of the, apparently friends with the Clintons prior to, you know, prior well, to... he was a Democrat. Yeah, he was a Democrat, you know, voted, you yeah. know, I don't know how he voted, but, you know, the stories of him voting Democrat. But he was a brand. But he was, he was a brand. But then you've got Nigel Farage in this country as well, once again, saying, well, you know, we've got the... We're against the political elite. The reason that your life is... Excuse my language, but the reason your life is shit is because of Westminster, Right. Well, no, it's because people like you, who are bankers, Fred, he was a banker, he was a, a merchant banker, I think, He's a member. he was a member of the elite who drove this kind of capitalist, this neoliberal system that we all, we are still, in, uh, that we are still uh, intertwined with. So as a result, I don't know what the point is really in terms of the Well, result, nobody's right? looking out for the little guy or the little girl. But that's it, exactly, okay. thank you. Yeah. They say they are, yeah. they say they represent us, but they don't. 
I agree. And to be honest, coming back to your point about, you know, parts of the country that have really suffered from this, mm-hmm. I mean, the thing about the other or this thing around immigration, um, it was a political project to allow immigrants into the country. Right. And it was very sensible. At one level, it was very sensible in the sense that we have a declining population. We have very high expenditure on social services. The working population isn't large enough to fund it. I agree. So you have to bring younger people in in order to create the tax revenue to fund all these benefits that we've been getting. Mm. How many and, lazy Polish people do you well, know? Exactly. And I the, couldn't and, name one. But the other aspect of that is it does drive down it drive does drive down wages. So big business clearly liked it as well. Mm. You know, so suddenly if you're in competition with these migrants and you're on minimum wage and if you want to go to the toilet you have to sign a a chit. You know, you're only allowed to go to the toilet for five minutes once every, you know, four hours. I couldn't do that. <laughs> I mean, it's just extraordinary what people are putting up with. And so yeah. is it surprising? These people, an awful lot of people, don't see any of the benefits of Europe. You can talk in these broad terms about, the, you know, the yeah. long-term benefit. But actually, for most people, the European Union is about wages being, you know, suppressed, suppressed yeah. social services being destroyed, communities being broken up. It's kind they of don't the IMF agenda, isn't it? Yeah. But the but the benefit of immigration itself, if you go to when I was at when I went to the hospital in Brighton, I had I think um, Portuguese doctor. I had um, a nurse. I can't remember where she was from, but she's definitely European. You know, um, I'm sorry, but these people, you know, have come from the European project. They've also come in and brought their transfer of skills and knowledge and are able to help us. You know, the NHS is sort of short-staffed. Um, you know, there's not a lot of funding, but is that the fault of immigration? Is that the fault of people coming in? And, and it's yes, not the fault wage. of the European Union either. No, exactly. It was government, our government policy. Exactly, exactly. It, so it, it, the, the whole visceral reaction to Brexit is, oh, it's got to be the European Union. It's the way our countries run politically is the issue. Um, so let's just, so let's touch on that because... Um, when I was first about to migrate to, to England, I, I asked a, a British chap in Melbourne, um, what's it going to be like? What am I going to find? And he said, you're going to see wealth like you've never seen it, and you're going to see poverty like you've never seen it. And you're going to wonder why everybody doesn't have a double garage and a boat or a jet ski, because people just have less money on average. And I thought, hmm, let's see what that's like. And when I got here and I, I found myself driving down the motorway and I was going 10 miles over the limit. And I thought that's about what I can do without getting nabbed by a speed camera. And then I found people flashing lights at me in these really large, really fast cars and tearing off down the motorway at really high speeds. And I thought, that's funny. This isn't the autobahn. It, it does have a speed limit. How can they do that? And that to me was a really nice metaphor for how the 1% behave in England. They live in a different world. Well, hold on to you. When you I. say the 1%, what level of income? do you think is necessary to qualify you as one of the 1%? Because we are all 1%, I would say, at the moment. I thought we were 5%, but but that's a good point. So I would say, is it maybe maybe 300,000 a year? Nothing like, nothing like. I can't quite remember, but it's something like 60,000, 50,000. It's something that an awful lot of middle management, or certainly double income families, would be getting without a problem. So are, you saying, notion, are you saying the one percent in England or the one percent globally? In England, yeah, because interesting. The average, I think, the average wage in the UK is twenty-seven something pounds. Like, yeah. yeah. So if you're earning, you know, double that or yeah. more, yeah, you're already a part of the. I wouldn't say the elite, but you're definitely a lot wealthier than most families in this country. So perhaps what I'm really saying is the one percent of the one percent. Okay. Yeah. And then on the other side, <laughs> the other side of the equation, I noticed 
quite quickly I would go to places like Nottingham and I would find that there were the jails there where they'd had the hulks and they'd loaded them up with people and sent them off to Australia as convicts. And I, I realized that a lot of those people were Irish political prisoners and poets and people that stole a loaf of bread or something like that. And the door frames in the cells were about five foot high. And I thought, how is this possible? This isn't that long ago. My great granddad wasn't five foot high. He was living somewhere around the London area and he wasn't that much shorter than me mm-hmm. from, from all accounts. What height are you? I'm about 6'2", yeah, something yeah. like that. So, so the point is that there was a group of people in England and in Ireland in that case who were significantly shorter. They actually looked different. They were eating completely different diets. And now five, six generations on, there are groups of people who live in the council flats and estates around the south coast of England, which we've already described as being one of the wealthiest areas, who have a completely different experience of being in England to what I do or what the 1% of the 1% do. It's kind of like the car journey you were talking about, you know, your privilege, you were thinking about your privilege. And I think that's actually really interesting that not a lot of us do really consider that, you and know, the privilege that we have. Apparently, you, you do need to be any more than I thought to be in the top 1%. But I, I would, but the thanks for fact-checking yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, What's the number? I'm, I'm not going to tell you because I'm going to embarrass myself. Come on. But, well, it, it's in dollars, so that doesn't count. But, but I, would, I would say, though, no, because when I, I was agreeing with you, because actually, from a world standpoint, from a world-level okay, standpoint, yes. we are in the 1%. Okay, I'm not saying yeah. in the UK, we're definitely not in the 1%, because you know, if you look at a footballer's wage, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but in terms of where we are from a world standpoint, you know, uh, even the average earning in the UK is a lot more than it is sure. um, anywhere else. Well, not anywhere sure. else, but a lot of nations around the world. So, so let's just bring this back to to what to England within the the European mm-hmm. region. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some interesting stats released and some charts which you'll be able to bring up on Google, Jeremy, um, that show the, the 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 increasing gap between rich and poor in England versus the US versus Japan versus Europe, and the gap between the rich and the poor in England. A, it's growing, and B, it's far greater than it is in a lot of the other nations described. Is that true? Um, I'm going to have to check that. You've got the Google, uh, Matt. You've got the Google imagery there. It's better for you. Again, I, I think it depends on where you get your information from. Yeah. Because okay, I I I assume that was true. Uh huh. But I, if I recall, I read somewhere that actually wasn't true, and actually inequality is reducing. Uh, see, this is and the thing. it seems counterintuitive, but. I would say that it's interesting. So I was reading, I was reading something on the, I think it was OEC. No, it wasn't. Um, Director of Chatham House, and I can't remember the guy's name, but he did write about um, Brexit prior to actually Brexit happening. And one of the things that he mentioned was in regards to um, how how the European project is actually and globalisation's impacted us and how it's helped us. And I'm pretty sure it was this gentleman, or was I'm rather getting mixed up with with something else I read. But essentially, the what overall point was that globalization and the European project and the in- inclusivity of um, the kind of international community has actually allowed for wages to increase, has brought down death rates, and has increased um, the quality and standard of living of most people. If we were to consider, you know, I'm 29 years old, but to consider the standard of life between now and when I was born. I can't remember all of it. I would say that there's a number of things that have increased and have got better. But I think that there are a lot of inequalities in the UK in terms of how wealth is distributed and how 
government policy is also distributed, which kind of brings us back a slight point to uh, the the lobbying aspect and the political elite, you know, direct, um, uh, um, uh, uh, lording over, you know, not lording over us, but essentially uh, creating, you know, creating a particular narrative for the country that allows them to get elected over and over and over again. But generally, I think we have we are better off than we were. How we're going to be once the, once Brexit does happen, if it does happen, is something that is going to be very interesting, and whether we're actually going to be wealthier um, or not. Um, okay, let's let's talk about that. So perhaps we start with you, Ben. Um, what are you worrying about? What are you hoping for when you think about what could be in the next year? My worry essentially is incredibly selfish, very selfish. How is it going to impact me? How is Brexit going to impact me? Is it going to impact my job? Is it going to impact? Um, you know, I've got a mortgage. Is it going to impact the rates of interest? Um, you know, my wife and I, our mortgage is going to be uh, up for. Uh, so we've got a two-year fix. It's going to be variable in October, I think. So we're going to be considering, you know, what we're going to do. And actually, I've put off doing a lot of stuff um, financially because I'm waiting to see what happens. I'd rather put money away and consider what's going to happen before we make a certain purchase or buy a certain thing or do a certain thing because or invest in something because I'm just not sure what's going to happen. I'm not an economist, so I don't know whether interest rates would go up. It's very unlikely that they would go up because of the fact that you know the UK needs is the housing market is a bedrock of of how uh, of our um, uh, our economy. But at the same time, I'm really scared about job creation. I'm really scared about whether there's going to be enough opportunities for people who are younger than myself. Um, I came out of university and law school when the political crisis happened. And I was meant to be going into a particular job, and that job didn't come about because of the political crisis. You mean the global financial, financial, financial crisis? crisis yeah. Sorry, yeah. Thank you. And that was difficult. It took me a long, 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 long time for me to get into something that I really enjoyed, and not to, you know, to find an opportunity because of the fact that there was just so much competition and not that many jobs. What happens if that happens again? We've got more educated uh, young people out there, and they're all looking for a bright future. Are there going to be jobs for them to go to? I'm not sure. I mean, if you were Spanish and yeah, you were 20, precisely. you would be worried. Yeah, if you've come to this country, you've come and studied, you're, you're, you're looking to contribute to the tax revenue of this country by earning a wage and, you know, being a part of the society, uh, being part of the society, and yet Brexit comes around and we don't know what the hell's going to happen with them. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with my father, sorry to dominate, but my dad's an Italian. He's looked for, um, he's asking to get um, British citizenship after been here since 1984 I think he's been here and you're thinking I'm thinking to myself you know my dad will likely be able to remain but at the same time what about his friends what about the community that he is part of you know is there going to be a mass exodus no idea Um, but I am I am worried about the cultural aspect of you know all these people leaving the country because they're scared of what you know some people might do to them because they're foreign Um, I'm scared of you know the financial situation number of things that I'm scared of. I don't know how the hell I get up in the morning. <laughs> but it's yeah. Coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and just the desire to do better every day. I'm joking. <laughs> just be your best self. Be my best self. <laughs> what about you, Jeremy? Well the first thing is I'm surprised that people are surprised that if you leave something like the European Union after forty years, there's not going to be a huge dislocation. Mm. I mean to me it's obvious like a divorce. You know, when you get divorced, both parties end up poorer. But you get divorced in order to try and improve something. So just focusing on the short-term trauma 
okay, you've got to deal with it, but it is a short-term trauma. And you can't just focus on that, which is why I think that one of the great political failures that we have is we haven't got this agreed sort of vision. But the second thing is that the trauma is made worse because a political decision was made to do no planning for it. And I find that absolutely incompetent. Well, and in the business world, what would happen to that manager? Well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't survive. Mm. You know, and, and the, the argument seems to have been, well, the stupid one was, um, this we're not planning to have a hard Brexit. We're going to have a negotiated agreement, which is going to be the simplest and easiest trade negotiation in the history of the world. So we don't need to have any contingency plans. Well, that's for the birds. Secondly, I mean, I think the whole negotiating our whole negotiating stance has been deeply flawed from the beginning. So that's one area that um, I find quite strange. Um, clearly, I mean, my fiancé is not from within Europe and we're having problems in terms of getting uh, sort of permanent right to remain arrangements. And this whole climate of fear thing predated Brexit and it was actually... Theresa May that provoked it mm. and she's she's continuing with that um, so the things that I'm frightened of I mean this idea that says there's going to be no food on the shelves and there's going to be no medicine and there's going to be no this and no that we're all going to die in our beds um, I I don't know if that's going to happen I suspect that we're going to have a bit of a problem for a few months maybe maybe it will be worse than that but I'm slightly more optimistic and I've got this idea that says that we need to be restructuring our economy anyway. We're too dependent on financial services. We don't have an industrial base. Um, if we did get our act together in terms of restructuring our, our manufacturing industries, we'll be working with new technologies. We should be ahead of the game. So if you're taking a 10, 20 year horizon. Do you want to give us some of the examples that you often talk about offline? Um, countries like Estonia and other parts of, of the world where, where they are being more progressive economically. And no, <laughs> you know more about Estonia than I do. But as I understand it, they've they've basically restructured their economy totally around the internet and around new media, and and they're extraordinarily advanced. I think, but when you've got things like three D printing, and you've got artificial intelligence and machine learning, and you know you know in, in biosciences and fintech, we are world leaders. And somebody gave me the statistic that says 86% of all English business, British businesses don't do any export. You know, they're just not, con you know, it's the big businesses that are really struggling, going to be struggling with supply chain and all this sort of stuff, but they will find a way of managing it. And if they all leave, we will have a highly educated workforce that will be forced to do more entrepreneurial things and create new businesses. I agree, actually, because I think it's a slightly aside, but generally the way AI 3D printing, the market, the process of industrialization. You know what we are as a, as a, a sorry, a, a nation that exports everything. We can still do that, but the workforce is going to be machine now. And I think the way that we consider how people work and how what people what jobs people will be doing has really got to be considered. Whether Brexit happens or not. We have to have a think about that. So I do agree with you that we do need to reconsider the economy. Anyway, We're being for you know. And it's, for, it's going to force us to do it early. We'll yeah. be doing it before most other nations, I suspect. But where's the funding going to come from, is my question to you. Yeah. Well, I've, I've uh, definitely um, raised a few eyebrows over the last couple of years by saying, as someone who's effectively an outsider, I'm becoming British, but I'm not British. 
I look at this, this situation that's happening. I look at what's happening in Europe. I look at what's happening in the States and I look at what's happening down under. Mm-hmm. And I think, ah, interesting. Okay. I can see that there's a gap between the rich and the poor. I can see that, that democracy in this form is not working very well. I can see the government couldn't physically process all the legislative changes that they would have needed to affect in order to affect a Brexit. So I knew there was going to be something, there was going to be a rub in that situation because they just can't get through the workload. <clears throat> And I think to myself, maybe this is what needs to happen. Maybe we need to have some of these debates and some of these issues come to the surface and get discussed so that we can make plans, so that we can have some vision. Just coming back to the Trump thing, because I know you, I mean, the, the, the general narrative around Trump is he's a disaster and all that sort of stuff. And I think in many respects he is. But when I've, when I've thought about it, first of all, I think you get the politicians you deserve, but that's a separate conversation. Um, it's a bit, for me, it's a bit like a forest fire where you get this this guy coming in and everything is destroyed and all the old ways of thinking are being destroyed. I mean, you know, the idea that says you can't do this and you can't do that and it has to work like this, that's gone for a bird. You know, that's gone out of the window. Every day he's changing people's paradigm. And what's happening is it's clearing space for new thinking, new ideas, new people. And I'm hoping that if we go the Brexit route, um, that that happens here, that we create space for new ideas for new ways of working this this idea that says you've got to have these very large companies well all these major mergers someone described them as dinosaurs mating you know and there's an opportunity for to break these organizations up and a lot of entrepreneurs I think they need to be broken support up. the idea of leave because they want exactly. change and these major global organizations who are dominating everything are anti-democratic they are they need to be broken up in my view, and that will ha- that will start to happen if people start taking back control from these ma- these huge institutions, global institutions. So, if you have a global institution, if you're an entrepreneur, just a, this is just a thought experiment. But if you're a glo- if you're an entrepreneur at the moment, right, and you're considering starting your business, you start your business, things are going well, you grow, and then you grow, and you start employing people. You eventually become a big business yourself, don't you? It's maintaining that. I think I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong. I'm just thinking that. Larger institutions probably need to start considering, start having having the narrative of actually, so that we we are a family orientated culture, or we have a culture where we care more about our workers and what we actually do and our impacting society and our community. Now there are a lot of big organisations that are doing that, but it becomes difficult because it's a self self thank you uh, film prophecy where you have a business you you grow it and you become big and eventually you are the big guy eventually the big you know the big business and you know what do you do then you're going to maintain you're going to you're going the whole point of capitalism is for you to maintain what you have or grow well, <laughs> you know you so can, there are lots of different forms of capitalism yeah, and well, we have a particular model and yeah. if in the end you create these huge monolithic organisations. You know, technology is advancing so fast, it's very difficult to retain a competitive advantage if it's just technology-based. Mm. And disruptors are turning up all the time. And, you know, the idea that says you've got to have this top-down organisational structure, structure that was designed in the, in the 19th century for big manufa- for manufacturing. Mm. It was sort of the sort of division of labour and all that sort of stuff. But it's not like that anymore. It's about information. It's about knowledge. It's about creativity. The matrix, and, as they call it. And it's about, it. you know, co-creation. So why not? You can make as much money by being a small organisation managing lots of other small organisations as you can by owning them all. And actually, they're more dynamic. They're more creative by spreading the wealth. And I think there are other models. And, other, and people are doing it. It's just, again, 
they're not given much publicity, mm-hmm. but I think increasingly they will become more and more relevant and more and more visible. Yeah, personally, I um, I look at what's happening with uh, with Brexit, and and I feel sad. I feel sad when I see good, hardworking, valuable people talking about leaving England, mm. and and when they tell me their story and and why they've gone back to Italy or back to Espana or back to Ireland or wherever it might be, I understand where they're coming from. It makes sense to me that that they've that the the current political landscape doesn't make them feel welcome. And I've had a lot of these discussions and, you know, I'm a, I'm a middle-class white guy who looks and sounds reasonably English, right? But I would be in a situation with people oh, with... I wouldn't say you sound that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks. Well, You've kept your accent. Oh, that's good. I like my accent. Nice. But, but I'd be in a discussion with people and, and during the, the Brexit vote and the, people would say, well, you know, it's all the immigrants, isn't it? We've got a problem with that. And I'd say, what do you mean? Do you mean migrants like me? And they'd say, no, 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 not you. Not you. You're okay. Because you look like me. Because I can leave if you don't want me here. I can go and work somewhere else. I can, <laughs> you know. It's I think, a, I, think oh, I'm, I am British, and yeah, you know, I don't feel welcome. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's something. That's probably another podcast or another talking paper or another discussion. No, I, I think that's really interesting because I don't, I, I, I don't experience any of that, so I'm not aware of that no, level of I, I don't, unsettl- I, unsettling. I wouldn't say that. You know, put it this way: I'm not walking in the street and somebody's hurling abuse at me, or considering, you know, this that, the next thing. It's not that. And maybe it's my own perception of society and my own, you know, prejudices myself actually of what people might be thinking. Because hmm. a big, a big issue that of this is that what are actually what is actually being said to people and what are people thinking and feeling? Very different. You know, um, and what's being perpetuated precisely as, as being the dialogue exactly. so, when it may not be. So, so it's permission is being given mm. to allow that level of uncivility. Is that a word? We'll call it word. Whatever. <laughs> um, We're tra- making words. Traditionally, Britain's been very accepting and very um, inclusive. Inclusive. Has it though? Well, I think, yeah, I think the difficulty is, I was, I was taught once where an immigrant population becomes more than 30% then you set up social uh, social tensions and social problems. Mm. And I just think it hasn't been man- managed terribly well. Mm. Um, and the other thing is that you haven't been allowed to talk about it because mm. the language we've got is very limited. So the, 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 it's very difficult to and talk the, about and, the subject of... And the stage, the way that we discuss things as a society has been very limited. Yeah. So it's, mm. it's th- this tension has built up and it's never been released properly. We've never had a proper conversation around it. I think, I it think seems to me. It's interesting because there are underlying currents, and I think what's interesting actually is there is a culture, and it's, it's, there's, a, there's a paradigm shift in the debate generally, uh, from a cultural standpoint, where you have arguments, people saying, well, I can't say that, or you can't say that anymore, you can't do this anymore, it used to be like this, it used to be like that. Um, and you're getting a bit of a visceral reaction. I suppose it brings us back to the populist point where when you're told that you can't say this, can't say that, can't do this, can't do that, what do you do? Well, you rebel, don't you? And at the moment, you know, at least the media is is, is um, uh, showing this kind of surge in right-wing populism that's going on at the moment. And as a result, I feel uncomfortable because as a male who is, and you can't see my air quotes because we're on a podcast, but <laughs> an ethnic minority who... Um, looks very different to a lot of people, you do feel a bit on edge at the moment. And if I was a, which I am, I suppose, a European national as well, having an Italian passport, 
as somebody who's got investments in terms of you know my cultural investment and also heritage in the European Union, I also feel unwelcome here as well because of the narrative that's been perpetuated by the media. Don't really know what the point is, <laughs> but generally I'd say that the debate at the moment there needs to be a debate rather than there isn't one. I think there is a point where people are saying, well, you can't say this, you can't do that, you can't, there's a no platforming, there's a lot of no platforming going on, there's a lot of people being shut down for the things that they say. I think actually if we allow idiots to talk as well as people who are quite reasonable to talk and to stand up and have a narrative and be able to discuss things, you'll be able to cut the shit sometimes. You'll be able to look, what you're saying is absolute rubbish and, you know, that person or that group will eventually kind of fight themselves out or blow themselves out. But know. as a young fox, um, I would this call is a fox, but definitely a young. This is, um, <laughs> Not even young. My impression so. is that with the younger generation, mm. this is far less of an issue. In terms of, in terms of, they're much more accepting, much more inclusive. They're much more. I doubt they've it. grown up. Uh, they've grown up in communities <sighs> which are multiracial. Uh, yeah, in terms of in terms of you know how how we're seen, yeah, I think you know my wife and I are both um, uh, uh, we're mixed race couple, aren't we? You know, I'm I'm mixed race myself, but my wife is um, you know British white, if you want to call it that, if you want to categorise things. Um, yeah, I, I haven't had much as much of an issue as maybe my parents' generation would have had. Um, you know, them two walking down the street, there's nobody looking at. But us. with people your age and younger. It's less of an issue than perhaps with older the older generation is it? it the perception is that. But at the same time, once again, there are a lot of movements. You've got the, yeah. um, uh, I can't remember the name now, uh, the um, alt-right okay. movement in America. And actually here as well, yes. which is yeah. a bunch of educated yes. young people who are fighting against what they call multiculturalism. But it's a very small, actually it's a very small number. But the media gives it a huge grace. I, I live here, which is a, a conservative south coast town. And quite genteel at some level and I went to a meeting about Brexit and it was supposed to be a debate and it was supposed to be quite a civilised debate and there was some guy that came in that was just started shouting very very aggressive in favour of Brexit very intimidating and you could feel the whole room get tense mm. and you just need one person who's sort of able to sort of who's sort of sufficiently detached from whatever, to be able to take that position. And everybody can feel intimidated. So I can well understand how, in your situation, a small, a very, very small but vocal minority can make you feel like that yeah, and, make, yeah. and make other people feel like that. And when you have someone like Theresa May having vans going around London with posters on it, basically saying, get out or something. I mean, I personally, I personally look, I look and perhaps don't sound (laughs) like, like the English, but I really have felt unwelcome at different times. Well, you are. Thank you. You drink my coffee, you come here, eat my food, you drink my drink, you, you know. Get out. Get out. (laughs) (laughs) I think feeling uncomfortable is, it's very interesting. I find it strange that you should actually, as a New Zealander, You've got to remember, though, Everyone that, that New Zealand, New Zealand there, there is an element of the same feelings that Scotland has towards England, from New Zealand to England. And the reason for that is that the empire gathered resources from the colonies. So New Zealand's main export before the rise of Japan and then China um, was through to the UK, right? And then to the so, States. So New Zealanders are antagonistic towards the Brits? Or there, the Brits there, is are... a, there is an element of 
kind it's it's not necessarily negative it's more it's more that there is a, a higher power that's involved in things and you see it played out particularly in Australia when Australia had had a almost went to a referendum of becoming um, a republic mm. because they were like what's in it for us before William and Kate came along what did we care about the royal family you know you look at New Zealand and I come from a very strong environmental family and a science-based family and we look at things like possums which have destroyed the New Zealand forests and rabbits which have done the same they were both introduced by the English now the English might have been my forefathers and foremothers mm-hmm. <laughs> if that's a thing but it is the old world and coming to the old world i felt a desire to fit in here and be part of the of society and i instantly find that i identify more with other people who've arrived in england whether they're romanian or polish or my flatmates are from the bahamas and from um bulgaria and and we have a similar narrative we share a similar story we came here we're doing the best we can we want to be part of what's happening here when there's things like in the news talking about migrants mm-hmm. i am a migrant you know i know i'm not the migrant that theresa may is talking about and her stereotyping but it still makes me feel uncomfortable so, it does raise another issue which i think is very interesting there's an assumption by Brexiteers, that the world is our oyster <laughs> and that Australia and New Zealand and India are going to welcome us back like long-lost parents and they're going to open up their markets to us. They're not going to screw us like the Americans are. That's amazing, and similarly with EFTA, the idea that we're just going to go back into EFTA and then they're not going to worry about it. But they are. They don't want, I suspect, if I was them, I wouldn't want a big economy coming into this cosy little club very cantankerous and difficult uh, larger neighbour making all sorts of demands because actually it's only temporary. We only, I mean, this Norwegian, the, the Norway option where we're going to park ourselves in, in, in is it in EFTA or whatever? Um, we're going to park ourselves in this economic grouping whilst we think about what we're going to do with the European Union or, or the world, you know, and so on and so forth. And if I was them, I'd be thinking, I don't want these people in my group. They're just going to make that life much more difficult. And with the same with Australians, I know. I mean, they're saying that they want us in and so on and so forth. But I think we are going to find the world. I don't think that has to be a problem. It's going to be hostile. But I it's, going to, it's going to be hostile. I think the UK, with the European Union, has a position of strength because it's got a huge market behind it. Huge. We are now in a position of weakness where we're desperate for trade deals. Well, you know, they'll, they'll probably accept trade. You know, Trump, for instance, why do you think Trump's like, leave the European Union, please? Because for America, it's going to be fantastic business. I think that the nations you know, that you're discussing will probably see an opportunity for them. And we're in a position of weakness in terms of our negotiation and the way that we negotiate. Now, we do have a lot of talent and, you know, infrastructure and a lot of that kind of stuff. But at the same time, if you're a Brexiteer, bear with me with my thought process here right? but if you're a Brexiteer you want to have independence and you know a sovereignty we're going to have to give a lot of that away in order for us to allow trade deals to happen we're not the UK that we used to be we're not the grand old nation that did colonise New Zealand and maintain this you know iron grip we don't have it anymore and I think your, your point when you were on, on, uh, earlier with the, uh, on the run sheet was actually are we a mid-sized nation yes and what are we going to do about it in terms of our trade deals well actually I think that we're in a position where we're really really weak 
And it's quite scary because we will get trade deals, but will they be favourable to us? Well, and also you've got this notion that says that the world is dividing up into big economic groupings mm. and they have their sets of rules and you've almost got to pick a side. Mm-hmm. And if we're picking, we either pick Europe or we pick the States or maybe we pick China or, you know, in the future, maybe India. So there's one train of thought that says we're going to have to pick a side anyway and we might as well stay with the one we've got. An alternative point of view says actually we are the canary in the mine, in, in, in the coal mine and we're the first ones to realise that actually staying within a trading bloc that the EU, which is very um, restrictive and protectionist and so on and so forth, is not a good thing for our economy. And other people will realise the same thing. And actually, we can trade perfectly well abroad. I mean, even if I mean, if you're producing seriously good product and you can't get it anywhere else, you know, having an extra ten percent on the price is almost. I mean, I have people coming to visit me on a regular basis, small British companies doing extraordinary things with IT, you know, small little family businesses producing stuff for satellites. And they're the only people in the world that do it. And there may be, you know, 50 people in this business, you know, and I'm, I'm just, I'm always knocked out by the skill and the expertise that we've got here that's just not being publicised really yeah I was going to say that that's probably you know for me I, I've got a, a far more pessimistic view but I'm not you know you and I are in different perspectives in terms of business and what you do and what you see I don't see much of that but at the same time that doesn't mean it doesn't happen but we don't seem to have enough media telling us well having said that, all this know, it's... having said all this coming back to the basic point about where am I now in the whole Brexit debate I'm still Let's as talk confused about you, Jeremy. yeah I'm still as confused now as I was at the start, mm. I've just got much more information, but not much more clarity. And I think that probably speaks to an awful lot of the position that an awful lot of people are in. Yeah, and I think that's probably why we need the people's vote, actually, in my opinion. Why we should have a, a second say on this. Whether my argument would actually be if we're going, if Brexit is the best thing for us and all the facts are now on the table, or at least part of the facts are on the table, so people, what would, pe- the people question, would vote. What would the question be? See, I don't know. I personally think that at the moment it's Theresa May's deal. Is one um, the deal that she has? Two, do we remain? Um, do we have a no deal? And three, do we remain? in Because the- if I was a Brexiteer, mm. and I and the choice was May's deal and remain, I would say that was a that's not fair. They'd have to they'd have to have a no deal in there. They'd have to say. But even okay, because if it, so basically no, there'd be three questions. Yeah, essentially, from what I from what I've seen, it doesn't mean that this is fully true, but it seems like there'd have to be a point where people have the option to say, look. You want Brexit with no deal. You want Theresa May's deal, or we remain within the European Union. It seems like that's the three options that we have at the moment. But again, if I was a Brexiteer, come. I'd be saying, "Look, there was a vote to leave, and okay, the the what that actually meant, you know, you can. Mm. But fundamentally, you'd want it to be a positive thing rather than a negative thing. And Theresa May's option is a negative thing. I think everybody. Yeah. I, yeah. I haven't met anybody. Well, I've met one person who would vote for it, but largely for reasons to be on me but anyway so that's not really a fair a fair choice it seems to me it's the, it's the only one on the table not a favorable choice. it's not a fa- but it's it's the worst of all possible worlds for me so remaining on existing terms on the basis that we'll go in there and reform things and be a you know a force for good and a force for reform is, is a, a good one I, I mean that's an option world trade rules is an option but it's not necessarily i mean i don't the think popular, it's actually a thing that i don't think you know if that's an actual thing i think it's 
I think a politician is saying that you know, there are the World Trade Organization rules, but it's not actually as fundamental as... Well, you do still have to get permission, don't you? You do still uh, have to sign I'm, I'm laughing because I've seen it from the perspective of New Zealand, where as a minnow in a large ocean, every trade deal makes a massive difference to the economy, and they're one by one, nation mm. by nation. It's not one blanket set of world trade rules for well, New Zealand. Yeah, so it may Maybe be... it's different for the UK. But, but, no, but, but also you've got this whole thing around... Canada or Norway or some hybrid and it just seems to me if there were some sensible Brexiteers involved and they'd got more time because now the clocks run down deliberately or otherwise so there's no time to do it but that would have been a fairer more realistic sort of choice so I don't don't know what the question will be. No I I don't either and I'd be interesting to see what if it comes up Um, really we're going to know in about a month's time anyway. Are you saying that that the people's vote seems like a, a positive next step because it would raise the debate properly. Yeah, if, I, if I'm going to look at this, if I'm going to look at this objectively, which is difficult... Um, to start I'll, that again? If I'm going to look at this objectively, which is difficult because I'm a, a Remainer, um, I would say that having a viewpoint, having allowing people to view, you know, sorry, to vote on the... Um, uh, whether we should take a Theresa May's deal, whether we should take no deal Brexit, or whether they should either remain in the European Union or, or some other question is probably fundamental. End of the day, you said that you're no better off, uh, you don't know, you're not, you're not any more confused. Well, if you? somebody came to me with a clear proposition mm. around remain that wasn't just, if, it, if they came and said, right, we're going to stay in, mm-hmm. but we're going to really push for reform, and the reform will be, for example, a, two, a two-speed Europe, because we haven't talked about what the options might be. But this notion that says there's a small hardcore of nations that are very happy to integrate politically and economically and in every other respect. But there's another outer core that are probably less comfortable with it. And there might be a third core around that. And it seems to me that sort of more flexible arrangement where you have associate members and you have different levels of membership, or you can be... At the, in the inner core for um, certain economic for trade and for security, but you might not be in the inner core for certain other things. So I think, and I think that's the Macron. That's picking, but I think I understand what you're saying, but that seems to be the picking and choosing, kind of like what the UK would yeah, like to Mac- do. Macron, I mean, it's, this is the thinking yeah, within he, he the European Union, as I understand yeah. it. The notion that, you know, that organisation is capable of change. When I, when I voted originally, I was sort of led to believe that the European Union is fundamentally incapable of change. The institutions, the way it's been set up, it's just the culture of the thing. It's just, it's fixed. And, it, and in that case, it would could be seen as a larger version of the same problems that face the British Parliament. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the point is, if you go in and you don't address these fundamentals, what's the point? Yeah. The problem is still there. And I guess what Ben's saying, I think, is that, that moving towards that people's vote would at least have the options tabled and that would give you... If there was more than one question in it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, if, and if there well, was... More, more than one option. If the options were right. discussed. I think that's the thing. It's the ability to discuss the options now that we think we know. Although partly, Theresa May's vote is on the 14th, I think it is, of January. What happens after that? What actually? What is going to happen after that? Nobody knows. So the questions are more likely they're not going to change. Um, they may, there might not be a Theresa May option. I don't know. That's the kind of scary aspect of it. And the fact is that because we don't know, how can we then on the 29th turn around and say, well, that's us out? Because 
people who did vote for Brexit are turning around and saying, well, this is not what I wanted to actually, this is not what I voted for. People who remain, well, they're always going to turn around and say, this is what I wanted anyway, I wanted to maintain and stay within the EU. The fact is, is that, well, the fact is, is that the facts were wrong <laughs> when, we, when we were told, um, you know, when, when the campaigns happened, I think we need more, now we have the information, we need the ability for everyone to consider what, 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 their, what their future is going to be. Because at the end of the day, who's going to be impacted by it? Well, I'm going to be, everyone around here is going to be impacted by it, but the generations that are coming, that are the people who are at university, high school and primary school at the moment, the ones are going to really feel the burden of it as well. And I, I feel like my generation is going to feel the burden of it. I really do. I feel that people who voted for Brexit, close to retirement, Usually, um, from an age standpoint, they tend tended to be people who were always Brexiteers or people who were Eurosceptics and who generally felt they've got their mortgages, they've got their houses, they've got their you know standing in society. And I've got a lot of friends who, and can tap my brother, for instance, in a really good job. He's an engineer, earns really good money, can't afford to buy a house, can't afford to buy a house. I'm not saying that's the fundamental aspect. There's a number of other aspects, but generally, what's going to happen? Well, our generation's going to suffer. I think it should be reasonable and right for us to have a vote and at least consider. And if it is Brexit and people do turn around and say, well, yes, you know, we've voted and we still want Brexit, then so be it. But at least we're now voting on the facts rather than on some sort of idealistic standpoint that everyone had that we're going to have a better NHS and 350 million pounds a week going into hospitals and we're going to have sovereignty and Great Britain's going to be great and back again and God knows all these other idiosyncrasies that we use it just doesn't make it didn't make sense to me back then and it doesn't make sense to me now sorry I'm a really waffling the difficulty I think is that is whether we actually have any influence I mean in the sense there was a vote and it was nobody knows what the vote was actually, what what, what the decision actually was. Um, then Theresa May, with a, a couple of other people, made a decision what it meant, and have just driven it, and with taking no advice. The media have perpetuated it. Well, I mean, I think she's ignored everything. She's ignored the media. She she seems to she seems to operate in a vacuum on her own, mm. just driving this thing. And yeah. it's as though the agenda was established on day one. And we're just going through this pantomime of... You we're know, driving off a cliff. And so, this, so, so the idea is that somebody once said, if, the, if a vote was really worth having, they wouldn't let you have one. You know, so we're all That's voting. That's one of the first things that one of their French colleagues said to me a couple of months ago. He said, why did this go to a referendum with one question? But even, but even I mean, because it's, it's a pretense that we're having a, a say in it. So we're all feeling happy because we're getting a vote, but actually it's meaningless because they ignore it. Right. And they just do what they want to do. And you so know, maybe that, we that, should just sit back and... Is that in response to having a people's vote and saying, let's not have a people's vote and allow Brexit to go forward because at the end of the day, that's what happened and that's how democracy The works. concern I've got with it is no, that, I, no, yeah. again, an awful lot of people are still going to be voting in a, form, in a way that they're not informed because mm. there aren't that many people. A lot of people are just disengaged still. I mean, there were 30, over 30% were disengaged the first time round. I suspect even more will be disengaged this time round, or at least they might still vote, but it will be an emotional thing based upon, you know, probably fear. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if it could go either way, I suppose, still. Um, but what happens afterwards? I mean, it comes back to this notion, do you, do you keep voting? Yeah, I think I think that's the one The one thing I would say in terms of people's vote. I do understand, so I, whilst I have been quite um, vocal in this podcast, especially about you know, people's vote, I actually do see the other side as well, which is that <laughs> there's a real danger of civil unrest if there was a people's vote 
and Brexit was to be stopped because there are a lot of people who have an interest in leaving the EU. And I think there's a, there's a politician at the moment who's been um, hounded by these men in yellow jackets or a group of people in oh, yellow right. jackets at the moment shouting, you're a traitor, you're this, you're that. And there is, and we've discussed this previously as well, that there is a, a rise in right-wing populism. And I'm not just saying Brexit is right-wing populism. I think it's wrong to say that, actually. But it has I'm, given permission for the It's for given the right. permission, but I actually think on both sides, on, on the left and the right, it's anti Anti-globalisation probably is a, is, a, is probably a fairer thing to say. I wouldn't say it's all right-wing. And, and I can see where that's coming from when you've got a, an increasing gap between rich and poor. Yeah. When you've got the end of the industrial age and and so far as um, manufacturing in the West and when manufacturing is happening elsewhere, mm-hmm. um, the people that used to um, perform those functions have either lost their jobs to someone in China or Thailand or somewhere like that or they've been mechanised mm-hmm. and automated um, and the machine is now building the car, whether it's in China or in England. You hear stories like this friend of mine who I mentioned who was saying that she was driving around in Sunderland in the north of England and and she said, oh, that's a real shame. The centre of this roundabout used to be so beautiful and covered in flowers and it's all covered in rubbish. And they said, yeah, well, unfortunately, um, the councils had to cut back on civil services and that included rubbish collection across the board. Like things are really not good, difficult mm. for people. But I think we've got this crunch coming anyway, irrespective of Brexit, because you've got climate change, you've got our, our, our sort of economy based on consumption. It's just not sustainable anyway. Yeah, we're all, we're so all it's, highly in debt, aren't we? And I think generally that's another thing. Actually, I'm worried about is the fact that you know we're all up to our eyeballs. You, you were talking about sorry to interrupt, but you were talking about coming to the UK and a lot of people having really nice cars and you know the one percent. And when you were talking about uh, when when the conversation was, well, what do you need to be in the one percent? As a matter of fact, most people who have really really nice cars have it on finance, right? They have they don't buy the cars outright. They don't own the cars, and you can there's an argument to be said. Well, actually, it's best to do that because the depreciation on a car is no point in investing in something like that anyway. Blah, do you blah, blah, work blah, blah. in finance? <laughs> no, but no, but the point I'm making is that we are up to our eyeballs in debt as a nation. Can we afford? to have a, whether Brexit happens or not, the next financial crisis is probably going to have a massive impact on this anyway. As a result, I think that the way that the political system and the way the economic system, uh, um, as it currently stands, does need to change. I don't have any answers to that. I don't know how to do that. But Brexit might, as a positive, if I'm going to try and come out with any positive, is actually allow us to think more about our economy and how we you know, run ourselves. And potentially we could have more entrepreneurs, we could have more um, in the innovations and, you know, potentially more wealth creation within the country. And that might be a positive, and I hope that is the case if it does happen. But to bring back to the point of populism and everything else, people are just really angry because they don't have, they see people who have and they don't. And that's where probably Brexit has come from, predominantly. And I don't even think it's down to race or, you know, those kind of aspects. It's about the fact that I don't have this and I've been left behind by this globalised uh, economy and that's what the issue is and that's where the fundamental cracks are. So whether we have Brexit or not, we still need to address that point, if that makes sense. We need to address that because we're neglecting it. And actually um, Jeremy Corbyn made a really good point in um, Parliament a few weeks ago, You know, I think it was last week or whenever he was you know, accused of calling Theresa May a stupid woman and all that kind of stuff. The thing he said was this, 
what about the, the, the NHS? What about you know the rising levels of homelessness that we have? You know why are we why are we focusing on this and not on, on on these fundamental issues? Well, to be honest with you, we've never focused on those fundamental issues really. So the reason Brexit happened is because politicians and society has failed really as it stands. I'm not saying in, in its entirety, and I'm not saying that, but the way capitalism in the way that we see capitalism at the moment really doesn't work and that's where we need to have the debate and I think the debate's got to be more about that than Brexit or not because the same issues are going to occur and we need a different different way of doing having the conversation I agree yeah and allowing people to speak and allowing people I think that's a wrap I think that's been uh, enlightening and that's a good place to wrap it all up yeah. Ben, thank you for being part of it. Waffling. That's great fun. <laughs> well, that's great fun. I learned a lot. <laughs> I think people are going to find it really interesting. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you very much. Really nice. Jeremy, always a pleasure. You too. Tune in next time, folks. Look forward to it. Today we're um, today we are. Uh, it looks like I can't talk. Joined by. Thanks, thanks, Ben. Today we are joined by. Started to intend to continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just 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 here to look good. Um,